Well, let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're continuing to work our way through this this great epistle. Things will kind of be speeding up for us as we move forward. Really, once we get out of Romans 12, we've been in this book for about two years, but it won't take us so long to finish the last five chapters, I don't think. Romans chapter 12, we're picking up where we left off last week, but we're going we're gonna to read a larger section. This morning we're looking at verses 14 and 15, but I want to read the whole section to us. Starting in verse 14, hear now the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do rejoice in your living supernatural inerrant word. We, we glory in you, our God. We glory in our Savior. We, we glory in your great salvation. Lord, that you have not left us abandoned. Lord, I pray this morning that by your Spirit, working through your Word, you would accomplish that which only you can do, that you would cause dead hearts to live and blinded eyes to see, deaf ears to be made to hear. Lord, that you would transform your people more and more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, on March 11th, 1830, there was a little 11-year-old girl doing her studies, her lessons with her tutor. And up to that point, she knew she was part of a wealthy family. She knew she had advantages and luxuries that other people did not have. But it wasn't until that morning's lesson, as they studied the royal family, that she suddenly became aware of who she was. Little 11-year-old Victoria was next in line for the British throne. As the famous story goes, she immediately burst into tears upon coming to this revelation, overcome with the weight and the responsibility of her position. And after she composed herself, little 11-year-old Victoria with great conviction, spoke these now immortalized words, if I am to be queen, then I shall be good. At age 11, future Queen Victoria, who did rule the English Empire from 1837 to 1901, recognized something very important. She determined with with great passion and conviction that her character was going to live up to her lofty standing, her lofty position. She 
discovered something about herself that morning. She discovered that she was going to be queen, and that made her want to live in a manner worthy of the crown. Well, as we have come to Romans chapter 12, Paul has made a transition in this letter. From the first 11 chapters of rich, deep, mountain peak, ivory tower theology, unfolding for us in great detail and glory who God is and who we are and what God has done for us. And now transitioning into the final five chapters, applying these lofty truths to our lives. In light of all of this, how should we live our lives? As heirs of God's grace, we must live accordingly, is what Paul has been telling us already. And so Paul begins his practical application of the gospel in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In verse 3, he says, By the grace given to me, I say unto you. In other words, Paul, Paul begins this, what we call the practical section of Romans, instructing us on how to apply the gospel to our lives and how we ought to live our lives as Christians. Paul begins by telling us we are recipients, reminding us you are recipients of something you don't deserve. What you actually deserve is judgment. What you actually deserve is condemnation. And that's not what God gave to you. Instead, you have been given God's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. God has given to you an inheritance, an inheritance that can never be taken from you, far greater than the inheritance that little Victoria had of just the measly British Empire. And Paul's been telling us how, how, how we ought to live out our Christian lives, how we ought to live out our lives in the body of Christ, in the church. And, and now he shows us even more. As he expands now, as we come into these verses, beyond the local church, he shows us even more of how, just how radical this transforming work of grace ought to be in our lives. That our relationship, not just with those who are in the church with us, but our relationship with everyone in the world and the whole world around us ought to be marked by grace. As those who are recipients of an inheritance of unmerited favor from God, so now we're to be a people whose lives are marked in every aspect of our lives, in our conversations, in our activities, in our relationships, we are to be marked as those who are extending grace to people who just might not deserve it either. We're sons and daughters of God's grace. Therefore, we ought to live as gracious people. That's what Paul is teaching us. Having ourselves received limitless grace from God, we should pour out our limited grace on those who are around us. And so in, in these verses that we're focusing on this morning, verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us three categories of people and what the grace-filled response looks like to them. He tells us, those who are persecuting you, bless them. Those who are rejoicing, rejoice with them. Those who are weeping, 
weep with them. And so we'll just look at these three categories. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is really a shocking command. We're used to hearing it, so it's not very scandalous to us when we hear this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And we go, right. It's really a scandalous thing that's being said. Think about what Paul's actually saying. He's talking about people who persecute you. Not just people who are rude. Not just people who are annoying. Not just people whose personality clashes with yours. Actual, legitimate persecution. And he says it's not just that we have to endure it. Endure the persecution. It's not just that we're not supposed to sin when we're under persecution or sin in response to persecution. He says, respond with grace. Bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Well, this is completely against human nature. It's completely scandalous to human nature. Again, we're, we're used to hearing it, so we don't feel that necessarily except in the, in the day-to-day living of our lives, we feel it very much. Our natural response is to curse and not bless when we face persecution, but not even when it rises to the level of persecution. That's our natural response. If somebody, though, persecutes you, if someone does evil to you, our natural response is to retaliate. It's to seek revenge. Isn't that what all action movies are based on? There's some villain, there's some bad guy who abuses some innocent victim in some way, and the whole rest of the movie is the innocent victim scheming and plotting and working and fighting to finally get revenge, and what happens when they do at the end of the movie? Great celebration on our part as the audience. We don't want to see Rambo bless the persecutors. We want to see the bad guys go down. That's what we want to see. But what Paul's doing here is, is, is in complete opposition to that. He's actually paraphrasing the words of Jesus here. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Matthew 7, verse 12, what we know is the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is, this is a radical departure from human nature. It's only possible through the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. There's no other way we could do this. There's no other concept like this in any pre-Christian Greek literature either. This is a radical new idea, a radical new way of thinking. The thought of blessing an enemy is a scandalous new idea. This word bless here that Paul uses, it's the verb form of the Greek word where we get the word eulogy. That's the Greek word, essentially eulogy. Eulogy is a, is a good word spoken of someone to honor them. We don't expect to go to a funeral and when a eulogy is given, hear a list of offenses. Things that the, the wheels have come off the bus if that happens at the funeral, right? We expect to hear the good things, the honorable things, the noble things about this person and their life. 
Well, people don't say kind words about a true enemy after they die. They don't say kind words about a true enemy, certainly when they're alive. Not, not if they're really your enemy. Douglas Moo in his commentary says, to eulogize a living enemy is truly unprecedented in both Greek and Jewish worlds and in our world. We just don't do this. We don't speak a good word about someone who is truly our enemy. Now, the world has come up with some commendable versions of how we ought to treat our enemy. Confucius lived 500 years before Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. said that the one overarching rule of life should be reciprocation. If you don't want it done to you, don't do it to them. So similar, similar, it's the negative side of what we know as the golden rule. The golden rule is in the positive. Do unto others what you would want them to do to you. Confucius said, don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you. And that was the common wisdom. Socrates, the Greek philosopher who lived uh, 450 years before Christ, said basically the same thing. Philo, the first century philosopher and theologian, taught that same idea of reciprocation. This is, the, this is the one overarching word for how we ought to, to live with people as, as good people is reciprocation. Do to them what you want them to do to you. Don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. You, you don't live by reciprocating what someone else does to you. According to Christ, the one overarching rule of life is grace. Notice how radical Jesus' teaching on this is. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Keep your finger here. We're obviously coming back to Romans. Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And look what Jesus says to us. And as we look at this, we have to... We have to remind ourselves that just because we've heard this a thousand times, our temptation might be to just not feel the weight of it. But consider how scandalous what he is saying to the way that we even think today as Christians. Matthew 5, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's he talking about here? Well, in the time of Christ, the Roman law gave the the Roman soldier, the right to force any citizen at all to carry his gear for a mile. Or, or to be his guide if they were in a different area. To be his guide for, for a mile. Well, the Jews hated this practice. The Jews despised this. They, they resented having to help their oppressors. They hated the Romans. They hated that the Romans were in authority over them. They didn't want to help them. They certainly didn't want to touch anything that belonged to an unclean Gentile. This was an oppressive act. Imagine if, if, if our soldiers and police officers had the authority to just come up to you and force you to carry something for a mile, carry heavy things for them for a mile. Wouldn't something in us rise up as sovereign citizens that would fight against that in the name of Christ? Here's what Jesus says. If that enemy forces you to do something to him, since you belong to me, since you carry my name, then don't make them force you. Volunteer. And then go above and beyond. And don't do it begrudgingly. 
Doesn't that scandalize our way of thinking? When our rights are being trampled on? When it is wrong for them to demand that we do this? And Jesus says, fine, don't make them demand. Verse 40, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone wants to defraud you, to wrong you, in order to steal your very shirt from you, Jesus says, fine, give them your coat. In other words, be radical in the way you show honor to your enemy. It's a true enemy. A true enemy who's trampling over your rights. A true enemy who's taking advantage of you on purpose. Jesus says be radical in the way you show honor to them. Not because they deserve it. But because of Christ we do this. Because of Christ we we do these things. Because of Christ we give them our coat. Because we carry his name. We want them to see there's something about us that's different than everybody else. We want them to see something's been transformed in this person. Verse 38, he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's the law of reciprocity. Do to them what they do to you. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, is Jesus saying we should go looking for a beating? Here's how you be the best Christian. Get someone to beat you up. It's absolutely not what he's saying. He's talking about something else. I could have someone come up and demonstrate for you what it's like to get slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person, but that might not be the most helpful illustration for all of us. Jesus is talking about something else. Uh, John MacArthur says this in his commentary. Among the Jews, a slap in the face was among the most demeaning and contemptuous of acts. It was considered an attack on one's honor. It was considered to be a terrible indignity. It was to be treated with this disdain as being less than human. So what's this about? It's not about being beat up. If, if, a, if a person stands in front of me, and I'm going to slap them on the right cheek as a right-handed person, which most people are, it's going to be this kind of slap, a backhand to the face. It's not going to be a closed-fisted punch on the nose. So it's a matter of indignity. It's a matter of being publicly shamed. And Jesus' point has much more with what we are not to do than it does with what we are to do in, the, in these moments. The point is, don't avenge yourself. Don't swing back. Take the shame. Take the humiliation. Be willing to be ridiculed. Be willing to do so without retaliation for the sake of Christ. He says in verse 30, 43, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These things Jesus is saying, if, 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 if it wasn't Jesus saying, if it was just some Christian putting this out on Twitter, we'd have a bunch of other Christians dogpiling them, telling them that they're weak and cowardly, that they're not being good American citizens. We've gotten real good at that in the last few years. 
But this is Jesus saying this. We have to accept that. We have to deal with that. So what does Jesus say? How do you cultivate a heart that wants to bless instead of curse in the face of mistreatment? Legitimate persecution. How do you cultivate this heart? Well, Jesus tells you, tells us, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do you cultivate this heart? When, when our human nature has something that wants to rise up in us to retaliate and to curse, how do we love and bless instead? The answer is pray for them. Pray for them. It's, it's one of the most practical things you can do. You cannot hate someone that you sincerely pray for. It's just not possible for the Christian. We're not, we're not capable of it. I remember I had a boss once in the trailer factory, cussed me out every single day, and I just despised this man. Month after month of being cussed out every day for things I did and things I didn't do. Just, I was a good target for it. And I got to the point where I just hated him. And I realized I had an issue in my own heart, so I just purposed in my heart, I'm going to pray for him every time I think about him. I'm just going to pray for him. And I'm not going to pray imprecatory psalms. Lord, break his bones. Lord, let him wither away like, away like a snail in the sun. No, not those prayers. I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless him. I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless him ultimately by revealing his son to him saving him. And what it did for me was it changed my heart immediately. And how could I pray for somebody like this and hate them? We just can't hold on to it for very long. It's the most practical advice Jesus gives us here. Praying for a person causes you to love them. I grew to love this guy. And even by God's grace, he never cussed me out again from the day I started praying for him. Not one single time, the very day. It's not always going to work like that for you. <laughs> it just happened to in that situation. It makes you love them. It makes you want to treat them not as enemies, but as friends, no matter how they're treating you. It's the most practical thing we can do to cultivate this kind of heart. And so Paul is, is summarizing this teaching from Jesus here and just summing it up in this sentence. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, does that mean that God's people should never defend themselves? No, it doesn't mean that. If someone breaks into my house and intends to do my family harm, I have other instructions from God in how I must respond as well. We need the whole counsel of Scripture, but that's not what Paul's talking about right here. We have to deal with what Paul's talking about right here. He's not saying we should never fight against evil. He's not saying we should never fight against oppression. It doesn't mean that at all, but what it does mean is that we, we must not have hearts that seek vengeance. Right? So, so we will fight against an evil, oppressive government that condones the murder of babies. We will not firebomb the people whose hands are murdering those babies. We will fight against them with everything in us. But we won't take vengeance into our own hands. And we just read that this morning a few verses down. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. And so that's the call. We 
we are to have hearts that do not seek vengeance. In fact, just the opposite. What, what should our heart's position be? It's not that we just refrain from retaliation against our persecutors. It's not just that we, we don't hate them or curse them. It's that we are to actually and actively pursue their good, to pray for them, to speak a good word of them to God. We're probably not going to go out in public and speak a good word about our persecutors, right? He, he tried to murder my family, but he's got a great heart. You should see the way he is with his dog. He loves that dog. No, we don't do that. We speak a good word to God about them. We pray for them. We pray for their blessing from God, which is ultimately their salvation. We pray that they too would be recipients of the same grace that we have been made recipients of. That's the first category of people. Those who persecute you, Paul says, bless them. That's grace's response. Second, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So verse 14 had a definite article in the Greek. That means it's referring to a specific people. We are to bless the specific individuals who are persecuting us. But in verse 15 here, there are no defining articles. It's not defining specific individuals. It's just two imperative statements. Rejoice with the rejoicing ones. Weep with the weeping ones. And the truth is, Christianity does not strip the believer of emotion. Whether it's laughter or whether it's tears. Grant Osborne in his commentary said, Christianity is neither denying life's hardships nor dulling life's excitements. Our perspective of eternity in Christ frees us to enter into the full variety of living, both in laughter and in tears. Both are appropriate before God. You know, we see this modeled for us in Christ himself, don't we? The, the second person of the triune Godhead not only modeled this for us, he experienced the full range of human emotion. We see him joining in the celebration at the wedding feast in Cana, even performing his first public miracle to aid in the rejoicing, to make the celebrating and rejoicing all that much better. We see a sense of humor at times, even as he responds with laughter and sarcasm to the religious elites and their insanity as they oppose him, we see him grieving and in great sorrow. The, the incarnate Christ experienced the full range of human emotions. And so Paul says, rejoice with the rejoicing ones, weep with the weeping ones. First thing he says is that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Frankly, if we're honest about it, it's often easier to weep with those who are sorrowful than it is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, especially if we're not enjoying the same success that they are. It's easier to cry with someone who loses their job than it is to rejoice with someone who's been promoted over us at our job. We rejoice with them when their family is thriving and we feel alone. We feel like our family is falling apart. It is easy for us to become jealous. It is easy for us to become bitter and resentful. But maturing in grace means that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. 
And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We ought to rejoice with one another when we are rejoicing. The, the, the opposite of rejoicing with those who rejoice is what? It's, it's envying those who rejoice. It's competing with those who rejoice. It's avoiding those who rejoice. It's resenting those who rejoice. And so a good test for the effects of grace in my life as a believer is to just ask myself, is it easier for me to console than it is for me to congratulate? Really, in my heart? Do I become easily jealous? Do I become easily covetous? Well, if you do, you're not alone in that struggle. That is our human nature. Listen as Paul instructs the church through Titus in Titus 3, starting in verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Verse 7 says, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Did you catch what he said there, though? You are heirs of the grace of God, so since that's true of you, devote yourselves to good works. And avoid the fleshly temptation to envy and strife and disputes. Since you are heirs of grace, commit yourself to these things and avoid these things. Like little 11-year-old Victoria, we should consider who we are. That's what Paul is calling us to do here in Titus. Consider who you are. Same thing he's calling us to in verse 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Consider who we are and then determine devote ourselves to live accordingly. That's what Paul's instructing us to do here in Romans 12. And doing so requires the work of God the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We just can't muster this up within ourselves, in our own flesh. It goes completely against our fallen human nature. We must call out to God to cleanse our very motives, to put envy to death, to put selfishness to death in us. It requires God's supernatural work in us and it requires hard work on our part. We won't just slide into it because we're Christians. There's nothing harder than putting selfishness to death. Self-worship to death. There is nothing harder. But this is a command from God and here's what it means. If, if something is a command from God, we can do it. God doesn't command us to fool's errands that are impossible. 
They're impossible apart from the work of His Spirit in us, but because His Spirit dwells within us, because we are heirs of grace, we can obey these commands. We, we can do this. The, the problem with demonstrating grace, the infinite grace of God that's been poured into us that we are not to, to demonstrate with our very lives, extending it to others around us, even those who persecute us, selflessly rejoicing with those who rejoice even when our life feels much more difficult and we wish we were in their position. These things are never a matter of cannot, they are a matter of will not. It's not that we can't do it. It's that we won't do it. But we're commanded to do it. It's not optional. It's not optional for any of us. And, and God has given us everything we need. Paul said this back in chapter 5 of Romans, chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We have everything we need. We've been made recipients of limitless grace, and we have been commanded and we have been empowered to demonstrate that grace to others. Paul then gives us this third imperative of how to demonstrate this grace with another category of people. Weep with those who weep, he says in the last part of verse 15. This goes beyond typing get well soon on Facebook or sending thoughts and prayers. It's entering into the world of suffering and caring. This is the Lord Jesus showing up at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. He didn't show up and look at the mourners and say, why are you sad? Why are you even crying? Aren't you a Christian? Where's your faith? Don't you believe in heaven? That's not what he did. He stood at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. He stood there among his other friends in their grief. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, a man's man, if there ever was one, did what? He wept. He stood among his grieving friends and he wept. And he knew what he was about to do. He knew he was about to command Lazarus to come out of that grave and yet he wept. He wasn't weeping in despair like they were. He wasn't weeping in that hopeless, he's gone and we'll never see him again, because he knew they were going to see him real soon. He was weeping out of sympathy for those he loved. He was weeping with a heart that was united to the hearts of those who were around him. He was weeping with those who mourned. One commentator says, Jesus Christ never ran from people in grief. He, he, he let himself enter into it. He embraced them. He wept with them, even though he knew he'd, been ra he'd be raising his friend from the grave soon. I've had the great privilege of being at the bedside of a number of people when they've died and being with families soon after. There are all kinds of scriptural truths that, that we know are true. 
God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And in those moments, a cheery smile on my face and glibly saying to the family, God causes all things to work for good. It's not going to help anybody. Weep with those who weep. Isaiah called the Lord Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He says, surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. And by the way, he's still doing this for his people. Right now. For you. And for me, bearing your griefs. Carrying your sorrows. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's able to sympathize with you in all of your weakness. And he does. He actually cares about your situation. And here's the mind-blowing thing. He cares about your feelings. How amazing is that? Isaiah 56 verse 8, or I'm sorry, Psalm 56 verse 8 says this just amazing statement. I find such comfort in this statement. You've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Think of that. That that's dealing with the level of feelings. Sleepless, anxious nights where we toss and turn when we should be sleeping. Our tears, these things matter to God. God is present in them. This is, has always been true, and it will always be true until that day when sorrows will cease and grief will be no more, when every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we will be with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day. This is the present activity of Christ with us. There was this custom that was practiced in the temple in Jesus' day. The temple only had one major entrance at the base of the southern wall, and worshipers would ascend the stairs as they entered the temple area, and then they would exit by a different route. And so the foot traffic was one way. It was one way in, one way out, and the traffic all flowed together. But when someone was experiencing some great sorrow, some great grief, some calamity had come upon them, some, some grief had come into their life, they walked the opposite direction from everyone else. So all the traffic is flowing this way, except we've got these one or two people in just here and there, traveling against the flow of the traffic. And they go in that opposite direction from someone else, because when they did this, it forced everyone who came into their path to encounter them face to face. For a a tiny moment to share in their grief, to to take note of it, to be aware of the pain in their life, in a sense to to weep, in, in in a moment to weep with those who weep. There's a phenomenon that happens with stringed instruments when they're in a room together. 
But when a note is struck on one stringed instrument, the corresponding strings of all the other instruments begin to vibrate with that sister tone. It's called sympathetic resonance. And this is what Paul's calling us to. Sympathetic resonance. Living face to face with one another. To live in face to face. Community. To, to resonate with one another as members of one body. We're heirs of God's grace and we ought to live accordingly. That's what Paul's showing us here. We are, we are the royal sons and daughters of God. Our vast inheritance is His kingdom. It's unlike anything we could inherit, anything we could compare it to. In fact, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived how vast is our inheritance. And so then we ought to live accordingly with who we are. We, we should, in our standing in grace, demonstrate the grace of God in our love for one another, in our love even for our enemies. And, and in doing so, what do we do? We are... We're showing forth the goodness of God. We're showing forth the grace of God. We, we're proclaiming with our very lives the truth and the power of the gospel that so radically transforms that even, even our own human nature is turned on its head. And God is glorified in that. God will be glorified in us. God glorified through us when we live that way. This is the gospel's fruit in our lives, but friends, it's, it's not an automatic thing. It's the work of the Spirit of God. You know, we must strive for these things. That's why we're commanded to them. So let us do that. What a, look at the world around us. Doesn't the world need this? Don't your brothers and sisters need this? We, we've shared this morning members of this family who've lost loved ones. There are others who have lost loved ones that weren't even shared this morning. There's, there's so much to weep about. There's so much to rejoice together in. We live in a world that hates us and that hostility is growing. There's so much opportunity for us to call on the name of the Lord on behalf of people who hate us. And hate Him. And ask Him to extend to them the same grace that He has shown to us who hated Him. As Paul said, hating one another. And being hated. God did that for us. He calls us to live in light of what He has done for us and who He has made us to be. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do rejoice in you. We glory in your gospel. We glory in your great salvation. Lord, these things that, that we're commanded to are challenging for us. We don't always even know how to, how to work them out practically. How do we bless and not curse those who persecute us? Lord, we need wisdom from your spirit and how to navigate these things. How to, to stand for righteousness but to do so in a way that glorifies you and, and even as the truth is spoken, it's spoken in love. We, 
We thank you, Lord, that you've given us in your word all that we need, and you've given us by your spirit more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. And so we, we trust in you, and we just commit ourselves, Lord. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient to you. We want to be shining beacons in this dark world. We pray that you would make us so by your spirit, and we pray that you would empower us to be bold witnesses for the truth, to not turn away in fear, Lord, but to not give in to bitterness and anger and, and retaliation either. Pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful in all areas for your kingdom's sake, for, for your glory, for the eternal joy of your people. We ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.